Thanks for checking out this week's message. I hope that it's helpful for you wherever you are on your spiritual journey. Here at Restore, we are a place where anyone can have a seat at the table and everyone can experience the extravagant love of Jesus. So I hope you walk away from this message knowing that you are deeply loved by God and that you can be fully loved by a church community. And if you don't have that, we would love to connect with you here at Restore. You can go to restoreaustin.org to find out more. You know, we're a church that has uh, quite a bit of age diversity, um, but we do probably skew a little bit younger. Um, and I get that. I was 26. And so was Matt when we actually launched the church coming up on eight years ago. And that can present some like challenges, having a church that's filled a lot with 20s and 30s. Um, but one of my favorite things about it is the amount of like kids and babies that are always around. It's really fun. And, um, but for me, you know, the magic actually starts before the baby ever arrives. Um, that's because I love really hilarious pregnancy announcements. It's like one of my favorite things, very niche interest that I have. Um, people who know that about me send me funny pregnancy announcements all the time. Um, so you can start doing that if you'd like to. That's a weird niche interest that I have. Is anybody like those? Does anybody else like those? They're funny? Like one person. Great. Thank you, Laura. Fantastic. This is going to go really well then. So I brought a few of my favorites with me today. We're going to look at them. Let's see the first one there. Oh, more love, less sleep, baby number three. You know, kind of basic. Children are hard when sleeping, that kind of thing. Next, let's see what else we got there. You are what? I love the cat's face. <laughs> that one, right? Cat's not happy about that. Upset. All right, what's next there? Classic, we're prego. You know, using household items to announce. I like that. All right, what's next? Ice, ice, baby. That's good, right? Yeah? Okay, crossover hit. What else? Oh, assistant to the regional manager. <laughs> Little office reference. That's one of my, that's a really sweet one. Love that. Do we, we have one more? I'm proof quarantine wasn't all boring. <laughs> well played, quarantine, due January 2021. Is that it? Is there any more? Oh, I wonder if wine misses me too. <laughs> that's <laughs> classic, classic there. All right, I think that's it. Um, but while all of these pregnancy announcements are fun and funny and great, my very favorite pregnancy announcement is actually found in the New Testament book of Luke. <laughs> See what I did there? Thank you, thank you. Please hold your applause, hold your applause. Yeah, worked that out all week. And it's when Mary announces that she is pregnant with Jesus. So it's Christmas time. We have to make good jokes like that, right? We're going to pick up the story this morning by looking back at our scripture passage from last week, from the prophet Isaiah, when he's talking about the coming of Christ. Here's what it says. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and equity from that time on and forever. I love this text because it shows us that a central part of Jesus's mission is to reign over the kingdom of God with justice and equity forever and ever. 
This is also a central theme of Mary's pregnancy announcement, which is often called the Magnificat or Mary's song. And it's found in Luke chapter one. So that's where we're gonna spend the rest of our time together today. You can turn there, Bibles, phones, anything like that. The verses will also be on the screen behind me. You can follow along. Now, when we first meet Mary and her fiance, Joseph, it's in verse 26 of Luke chapter one. Here's what it says. God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Now, Luke is really insistent that his readers pick up on something in these verses, right? So twice in two sentences, Luke says that Mary was a virgin. Why is that so important to him? Well, it's first because it was this Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah. We just read it in Isaiah, right? The virgin will conceive and give birth to a child. He also mentions, right, that um, Joseph, a descendant of David, he says. And again, this is hearkening back to that Isaiah passage where it says the Messiah will sit on David's throne. Luke wants his readers to know that this Jesus, he believes, is the promised Savior prophesied about in Isaiah and throughout the Old Testament. But Luke is also doing something else really important in this passage. I think we usually get the first part, right? We get the connectivity. But this second part, I think we often miss. You see, Luke is emphasizing the countercultural nature of Jesus's mission here. Luke is making the case that the kingdom of God is radically different than any other earthly kingdom. And here's what I mean by that. Joel Green, he's a New Testament scholar and professor at Fuller Seminary. He wrote an incredible commentary in the book of Luke. He says it really well in this quote. The social setting to which we are introduced in Luke 1, 5 through 2, 52 is one in which issues of social status and social stratification are paramount. Luke's social world was defined around power and privilege and is measured by a complex of phenomena, religious purity, family heritage, land ownership, vocation, ethnicity, gender, education, and age. So Mary's introduction that we just read is striking. It is as if she were an orphan. No family background is provided. She is betrothed to Joseph, but as such, she has not yet entered into his house or inherited his status, and yet, She is highly favored by God. So just like I don't want you to miss that she was a virgin, that Joseph is in the line of David, all those little things, Luke also does not want you to miss, right, that the angel says, greetings, you who are highly favored. Because in the kingdom of that world, Mary is a nobody. She is the lowest of the low in virtually every category that Dr. Green mentions as measures of power and privilege in that society. She isn't second class or even third class. She is bottom class. Mary has no family heritage of note, owns no land, has no vocation. She's from Nazareth, which is a tiny town of about 1,600 people at the time. In John's account of Jesus' life, you may remember somebody finds out that Jesus is from Nazareth, and they say, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? This was the prevailing opinion about Mary's birthplace. But she wasn't just from a poor town. She was a poor person, a part of the peasant class who were oppressed and taxed relentlessly by the ruling elite. 
Peasants had to use the little money they earned from things like agriculture or carpentry and other menial trades to pay three different taxes. One to Rome, one to King Herod just for his building projects, and another to the temple. On top of all of that, Mary is also a woman. Women in the kingdom of that world had no rights. They were the property of their fathers until they were basically sold to another man in marriage at a very young age for a dowry that was arranged between the father and the to-be husband. Most scholars believe Mary was about 12 or 13 when the angel visited her at this point. She probably couldn't read or write. The majority of women in that day, especially poor peasant ones, weren't deemed valuable enough to take the limited educational spots that were available. Put all of that together. Mary was an illiterate peasant girl born to a no-name family in a town that people believed nothing good ever came from. What I want us to understand is that in the kingdom of that world, Mary was nobody. But in God's kingdom, she was somebody. In the kingdom of the world that she lived in, she was lowly and marginalized. But in the kingdom of God, how is she greeted by the angel on high? You are highly favored, highly favored and chosen by God. Why is that? Because the kingdom of God is radically different than the kingdoms of this world. The kingdom of God is radically different than the kingdoms of this world. Jesus hasn't even come on the scene yet, and we are already seeing the world and the way things are defined begin to change. Mary shows us how God is choosing and exalting those who have been cast aside traditionally. This is our first glorious glimpse at the kingdom of God breaking into this world. And my friends, it's a breathtaking thing to behold. But Mary is understandably a little taken aback at this angel and the angel's message, right? Verse 29 records her response. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. I love that part. It's another indication, right? Like, why am I being greeted as highly favored? I'm the lowest of the low. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. Now, listen, I, I don't think this question from Mary is only motivated at the shock of the seeming impossibility of her virgin pregnancy, right? I think that's part of it. But the prospect of her becoming pregnant at this point in her life would have been incredibly dangerous, right? Because Mary knows that if she shows up pregnant to her wedding, there are going to be some major problems. See, there were laws about this kind of thing in this kingdom at this time. Listen to Deuteronomy 22. If a man takes a wife and after sleeping with her, dislikes her and slanders her and gives her a bad name saying, I married this woman, but when I approached her, I did not find proof of her virginity. Then the young woman's father and mother shall bring to the town elders at the gate proof that she was a virgin. 
If, however, the charge is true and no proof of the young woman's virginity can be found, she shall be brought to the door of her father's house and there the men of her town shall stone her to death. She has done an outrageous thing in Israel by being promiscuous while still in her father's house. Okay, in case you didn't catch all of that, basically, after a groom consummated the marriage with his new wife, he could accuse her of not having saved herself for him. Then there would have been a trial of sorts in front of town elders to try to prove that she actually had done that. But if the elders decided there wasn't enough proof that she was a virgin, they would stone her to death. How do you think visibly pregnant Mary would do at a trial like that? She would not have had a chance. She can't be like, no, you don't understand. This is God's baby, right? The Holy Spirit got me pregnant. That doesn't work, trials like that. So Mary is understandably terrified at the prospect of becoming pregnant at this moment in her life, right? This could not just mean uh, casting down even lower on society's ladder. This could mean death, right? Depending on how Joseph handles this. But look at how she responds to the angel's explanation. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is gonna have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. Mary responds, I am the Lord's servant. She answered, may your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. Even knowing how dangerous this calling was, Mary sets aside her fear. She steps forward in courage. She says, I am the Lord's servant. I'm in. Whatever needs to happen, I'm in. But again, we see a juxtaposition, right, between what is important in earthly kingdoms and what matters most in God's kingdom. The world Mary lived in pushed her to the margins, but God did the opposite. In fact, not only did God see Mary on the margins and go to her there, God purposefully used this marginalized teenage girl to bring the savior of the world into the world. Theologian Young Lee puts it like this, Jesus was born to be a marginal person. He was conceived by Mary when she was unwed. Thus, while the birth of Jesus to Mary was divinely justified, it was nevertheless socially condemned. Jesus, as well as his parents, were marginalized from the time of his conception. In the kingdom of that world, they were pushed aside. In the kingdom of that world, this family were nobodies. But in God's kingdom, there was somebody. After the visit from the angel, Mary goes to see her cousin Elizabeth. And it's during this visit that Mary drops her famous birth announcement in the form of a song, the Magnificat. Now, songs like this, they're not uncommon in scripture. The Old Testament records one like it from Miriam and Moses, Deborah and Hannah and, and many others. Luke is again reminding his readers that this is not a new story but a continuation of an old story about how God loves and pursues humanity. But 
the birth of Jesus is not simply another scene in the drama. It is the beginning of the climax. Mary is singing about the Messiah, God in the flesh coming to earth. She's singing about her great joy to be a part of it and how the world will never be the same because of what's about to happen. More than anything, Mary's song tells us about the kingdom of God, what it's like, who matters inside of it. It's not just a a prediction about what Jesus will do when he's here on earth. It's a declaration about what God will do forevermore. I love the way that Rachel Held Evans sets this Magnificat up in a blog she wrote back in 2017. She says, it's an unconventional birth announcement, defiant, prophetic, unsentimental. We like to paint Mary in softer hues, her robes clean, hair combed and covered body poised and prayerful surrender, but this young woman was a fierce one, full of strength and fury. When she accepts the dangerous charge before her, every birth was risky in those days, this one especially so, rather than reciting a maternal blessing, Mary offers a prophecy. So here is that unconventional birth announcement in full. I'm gonna read it over us. Oh, how my soul praises the Lord, how my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he took notice of his lowly servant girl, and from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one is holy, and he has done great things for me. He shows mercy from generation to generation to all who fear him. His mighty arm has done tremendous things. He has scattered the proud and the haughty ones. He has brought down princes from their thrones and exalted the humble He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. He has helped his servant Israel and remembered to be merciful. For he made this promise to our ancestors, to Abraham and his children forever. What I love most about Mary's Magnificat is how it starts out kind of like a typical praise song, right? My soul praises the Lord. My spirit rejoices. God has done great things. But then very quickly, it turns into this revolutionary manifesto about God scattering the proud, bringing down royalty, sending the rich away empty-handed. I know it feels like two different things, but these two parts are actually deeply connected. Because Mary's song, you see, it moves from personal at the beginning to communal at the end. She spends most of the first half talking about God's work in her life, and then the second half talking about God's work in the world. And her connection is this. What God has done for Mary, God will do for all of humanity. And this is a beautiful picture of how the kingdom of God should rule in our lives. It is both personal and communal. You see, anyone who tells you that the kingdom of God is only about personal salvation or only about communal justice is just flat wrong. It's always both. The good news of Jesus Christ is always both spiritual and social, personal and communal. It's not 50% of one and 50% of another. It's 100% of both. It's also important to note that God is the main actor throughout Mary's entire song. He is the one providing salvation and blessing. He is the one showing mercy and giving help. He is the one bringing down the powerful and the proud. 
but God has and will continue to work through those who make themselves available to him. People like Mary and Joseph and people like me and you. As followers of Jesus, we have joined in what can best be described as a revolution of love, empowered by the Holy Spirit in service of God's upside down kingdom. That is what we have signed up for. We also see two sides of God in Mary's song here, right? The warrior king who scatters the proud and dethrones the rulers and challenges the rich, and the merciful savior who feeds the hungry and lifts up the lowly and helps those in need. And I know, again, these two might feel disconnected at first glance, but they aren't. They're two sides of the same coin because out of God's love for us, God pursues both justice and mercy simultaneously. Even his acts of justice are merciful and redemptive. This is actually the core message of what's called liberation theology. I love how Leonardo Boff, one of the fathers of liberation theology, says it in his great work called The Maternal Face of God. He said, God flings the proud of heart to earth in hope that they will be delivered from their ridiculous vaunting and flaunting to become free and obedient children of God and brothers and sisters to others. God's justice work is always redemptive. Joel Green, our scholar from earlier, puts it like this. The mighty one who takes the side of the lowly, this is not to obliterate the powerful so the lowly can achieve positions of honor and privilege to which they previously had no access. Rather, God is at work in individual lives like Mary and in the social order as a whole in order to subvert the very structure of society that supports and perpetuates such distinctions. You see what I mean? God's not just saying, these people are lowly and oppressed, these people are powerful, and we're gonna switch them so that now these people are powerful and oppressive, and now these people are becoming oppressed and hurt. It is the great equalizer. The kingdom of God moves all of us onto the same plane, freeing us from these things that have been put on us by society, saying, this is how I measure. If I'm better than you, or you're better than me, or you're higher than me, or you're more powerful in the kingdom of God, it's not like that. What did Isaiah say? The Messiah will rule with justice and equity for all people. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Mary's song is not only a prediction about Jesus' mission during his short time on earth, it's a declaration of God's mission for all time. This is what God continues to do, turning the systems and structures of earthly kingdoms upside down in order to create a new kingdom where everyone is equal, where everyone has inherent value and worth, where all people can flourish. Last week, we really focused in on how Christmas is God's reminder that God sees us, God loves us, and God is with us. I think that's beautiful and important. It's foundational. But this week, I wanna leave you with the reminder that God isn't just with you. God wants to work through you, too. We have joined in this revolution of love, this work of the upside-down kingdom, God's love poured out upon me and you is not meant to be hoarded. 
for our own selfish gain. God's love is meant to flow through us to the world around us. Christmas, my friends, is our annual reminder that God's love is no static thing. It does not just sit in one space. It does not just live in our hearts. It is meant to move. It is meant to move us. It is meant to move through us. God's love is revolutionary, turning kingdoms upside down and bringing salvation to all people, spiritually and socially. This is the way of Jesus. I wanna end this morning with a quote from my friend, Dan Sadler. Dan is a pastor in New York City of a church called Mosaic. They are fully committed to this work of revolutionary love. And one of the ways they embody it on the streets of New York City is by supporting migrants who have been bused to New York. You may have heard about that practice happening. So what Dan and his church do is they set up care stations right in front of where the busfuls of immigrants are dropped on the streets, sometimes with only the clothes on their back. They provide a hot meal, new clothes, groceries, childcare supplies, connection to city resources all over the place, wherever they happen to end up, and an invitation into the Mosaic community to be a part so they don't have to be alone. As I said, this is the way of Jesus. This is the work of revolutionary love Mary talked about 2,000 years ago and that Christians have been albeit imperfectly, attempting to live out ever since. Here's how Dan says it. I wanna leave you with this. Christianity can be confusing, but the way of Jesus was pretty clear. Move toward the poor, empower the woman, create space at the table, throw parties, widen the family boundaries, poke holes in oppressive systems, don't retaliate with violence, forgive your enemy, don't store up wealth, be present with people. Heal, announce, push back the darkness. This is the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God is near. And my friends, what I wanna leave you with is this. We are called to make this a reality. This is our job. This is what we have signed up for. When Jesus taught us to pray, do you remember what he said? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is what we are supposed to be doing every single day, is asking the revolutionary love of God to flow through us to our neighbors and our loved ones and people we've never even met around us, to invite them in to this radical, upside-down, inclusive, equitable kingdom of God where salvation and flourishing is offered to absolutely everyone, especially those who've been pushed to the side, especially those who've been told, you're too lowly for this, you're too on the margins for this, you don't have a place here. This is our job. This is what it means to follow the Jesus that Mary sang about. Let me pray. Holy God, this time of year, I know that we all have a million things going on. We're all thinking about 
our responsibilities, what we're called to do, the places we have to be, maybe the traveling that we have to do, the parties that we need to show up at, the parties we might need to throw, the people that we're so excited to be around, the people we're a little anxious to see. But even as those things often dominate our thoughts, God, I pray that we would be reminded through Mary's beautiful song this morning that the Christmas season is an invitation into this revolution of love. Revolution that started thousands of years ago, but that you are still doing day in and day out. And that if we would be open to it, you wanna do through us. So here's my prayer for me and for all of us, God, that you would give us these little opportunities this Christmas season, these little spaces that we can insert love and hope and flourishing for people into. Whether it's conversations, whether it's challenging harmful beliefs, or whether it's real tangible stuff as we show up to help and support folks that are in need. Maybe it's receiving generosity when we're so comfortable feeling like we can do it all on our own. Maybe it's looking for ways to be generous instead of just being reactionary, but actually seeking out opportunities to support and help and love folks this Christmas season. Whatever role you have for us to play in this revolution of love, we're in, God. I think about Mary in her room, that 12, 13, 14-year-old girl gets visited by an angel with a calling that feels impossible in more ways than one. I think about her response, God. I am the Lord's servant. Whatever God needs from me, I will do. Make that our response this season. We are here to be a part of this revolution of love. Show us how you would have us participate in it. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.